0: The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Okay, let's get started. I'm going to pray, which is functionally getting us all to quiet down. Jesus, we're thankful um, for your church. We're thankful that you have given us your church as a gift uh, to serve, as a gift to um, live in the midst of as a gift to spend time with and go hiking with and um, do lots of fun things. We're thankful that we can learn together. We're thankful that we can learn from one another. Uh, Jesus, we're also thankful for the good news that you died that we might live. Um, The good news that we are no longer slaves in bondage but we are redeemed by the price of your life. Uh, Again, that we might have life in you and life in your body. So we ask tonight that you would help us just to um, think well about how the gospel affects change. That's kind of a weird sound, isn't it? How the gospel affects change in our hearts and in our communities. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, we are going to uh, go over a, a few logistics really quickly, and then we will dive in. Everybody goes numb when somebody says logistics, but this is so that we're all on the same page for the next four weeks. So I am going to go really fast so that we can get into the Bible, we can read it together, and it will be fun. First, this is how we change. This is not Gospel-Centered Life. If you are here for gospel Center Life, we're thankful for you. We're not going to mock you, but you can stand up and go upstairs, up these stairs, all the way to the top, and go to gospel Center Life. Um, It's going to be awesome up there as well, I promise. Um, Second, bathrooms are on each side of me. There's a gal's restroom on this uh, side and a guy's on this side. Um, Feel free to get up and get snacks and drinks at any point, but we will have a break in the middle of our time together and we will do a lot of discussions. So there will be ample time for you to get up and get drinks, coffee, water, juice. There's snacks at most of your tables. Um, If you don't have snacks like this table, Steel beg, borrow, or steal. Um, as much as possible, um, we're trying to frame a lot of this class around gospel communities. And so if you see your gospel community here, please try to sit with them. I know that's hard to do right now. Uh, Maybe at the break you can trade some seats or next week you can just try to sit with your gospel community. We'd encourage you to do that. We'd also encourage you to grab dinner before you come with your gospel community or after or go out for a drink or something like that and talk about how good Jesus is to us. Um, If you're not in a gospel community, we'd encourage you to get involved in one. Uh, We have a group connect on October 11th if you're interested in a gospel community, which I will make an argument soon that you should be interested in a gospel community. Uh... Group Connect is a great way to get connected with the gospel community. Maybe you'll meet one here. Uh, Sit down at a table with a bunch of fools that look like they like each other or kind of like each other. Maybe that's a gospel community. Maybe you can join that one. That'd be really fun. Uh, Next thing, real quickly. We have uh, books, binders, and materials you can still buy at the break or at the end of the class here this evening. We know that we had to pick up the pace just because there were so many people. Which is really exciting. Um, and I already said that we're going to take a break. So, a couple of assumptions heading into this class. Just so that you guys know. This is a class. It's not a seminar. Which means we're not just going to kind of like scratch the surface of, an, of, of a topic. It's a weird, it's a really weird thing I just did there. <laughs> I don't like it. Um, but we're not going to do that tonight or in the course of the next four weeks. We're going to talk as practically as we can about gospel issues, about how to apply the gospel to one another's lives. Um, We're going to get really in-depth. We're going to have a lot of table discussion. And so if you are one of those types who's like, I didn't come here for table discussion, buckle up, because it's going to be a lot of fun. And um, and it really is going to be a lot of fun. So this is a class. It's not a seminar. It's going to be practical. Second, we are asking you to commit to this class. We live in a culture, in a city, and we are, by and large, the lion's share of us in this room, are part of a generation and a subculture of people who hate committing to things. We hate it. It's one of the largest cultural, social idolatries that we buy into. And so let me encourage you. You will walk away tonight going, wow, Andrew is not Brian. (laughs) And that is a good thing. Not, I didn't even mean that negatively. But the reality is, is you're not here to consume from my teaching. You're here to discuss gospel issues with one another, okay? So I'm asking you, I'm, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you as one of your pastors. Commit to this class. It's four weeks. Please come as much as you can every single week. Okay, that's my big plea. Uh, next thing. We are assuming a generally Christian audience Every single class when we do one like these, somebody comes up and says, wow, I couldn't bring my non-believing friend to that. You can. Praise God for that. Um, But we are targeting people who already know the gospel here for the next four weeks. In all seriousness, feel the freedom to bring people who don't know Jesus or who are questioning Jesus. We love those people. If you're here, we probably have some people in here. We love you. We're thankful you're here. But we will use um, frameworks that we can all learn together that are generally Christian, and yet the gospel will be preached over and over again. We were talking earlier about how um, repetition is arguably the strongest teaching tool we have. That's why we do liturgy on Sunday morning upstairs. That's why we um, talk about kind of doing the same things over and over again. Is because it, it forms us and shapes us. And so it might seem weird um, yeah, it might seem weird, but we're going to do the same things over and over again. So, um, I don't know how that connected with the Christian audience. I, I lost my train of thought. That doesn't matter. Ah, so, um, lots of group discussion, gospel communities, there's a lot of you here. Gospel community leaders and gospel community members, we're really thankful you're here. Um, you definitely answered the call to come and talk about the gospel together. And let me say this, um, the last thing, and we'll say this every single week, hopefully, um, this class is for you. It's not for the person sitting next to you. It's not for your spouse. It's not for your coworkers. It's not for whoever you think it's, it's for. This class is for you. And I don't mean that in a consumeristic way. What I mean is, when you're thinking and talking in the context of your group at your tables, don't just be thinking about how you apply this in your gospel community. Recognize that these truths are for you. We need to take these to heart first and then apply them with other people. And so if if you're just thinking like, how do I get my husband to change? Or how do I get my wife to change? Or how do I get my kids to change? Which are all fine questions. The first question you should ask is, how does the gospel change me?" Okay, amen. Can I get an amen? That's great. We're Baptistic. Um, So where are we headed? We're going to talk tonight about four big things. You have four sections in your binder. Uh, We're going to talk about why change is important, kind of, What's the why behind change? Uh, We're going to talk about how the gospel is inherently connected to change. We're going to talk about how uh, community is the context, the primary context in which God has, has brought about change. People with other people, that's where change Happens. It's the location of change. And then last, we're going to talk. We're going to touch briefly on kind of the the framework, the method, the mo that we're going to talk about for the rest, the the last three weeks, um, called the big picture that's in the book that you guys bought tonight. Um, and if I can just say a little bit about that, uh, tonight will be a little bit more uh, this thing, a little bit more. And yet we're going to do lots of table discussion. It's going to be very practical. But I say that because in the in the next three weeks we're going to get. Way more practical, Um, and if you look at the table of contents in your book, you'll see why. It just breaks out that way. So we're going to go through basically the first six chapters of the book. We won't be, I won't be quoting the book at you. I'm not using the book exactly. I'm not going to walk straight through the book, but we're going to use the big concepts, the important things, uh, distill them down, and make good whiskey. So uh, (laughs) let's get started, um, and we will jump in together. So why does this matter? Why does change matter? Not just for us as Christians. But why is change something that, that, that riddles the hearts of most people in our world? Definitely most people in our country. Whether it's, it's self-help books. Whether it's leadership culture and books. Whether it's um, just trying to figure out the intricacies of a marriage or Family relations with um, parents or with siblings or dating or generally, why as Christians do we care about change? A number of years ago, uh, my wife and I were um, just passing our first anniversary, which is great. Usually, some of you go like woo woo at that point. None of you did that. Okay. and, and um, we were just passing our first anniversary, and Woo! thank you. <laughs> and uh, we, were, we had moved from Omaha, Nebraska to Chicago, Illinois. My wife had changed jobs, changed territories, changed bosses, changed work. Uh, I was moving from a youth pastor role at a church to a full-time seminarian. Uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child. I was learning to... Uh, ancient languages and we had said child yeah (laughs) and we found ourselves in this wonderful place that God brought us to where we had no idea what was going on everything was hard every single thing we did seemed like it was a task it was a chore it was really challenging and so, in the middle of the night, when a two or three or four week old, or even a two or three or four month old child doesn't want to sleep well, by the time he was three months old, he was sleeping fine, but even still, still getting up, still kind of crazy having a baby, brand new parent, new place, no friends, lots of change, we're sitting there and we're saying to ourselves, how do we make sense of this life that God has brought us into, that he is." He is we feel like he was leading us there. How do we make sense of just the challenge of our own very, very, very young and pretty fragile marriage? I mean, your first year of marriage, you're, in a, you're just in a fragile place. And not because of anything crazy. We were both extremely faithful. We didn't struggle with like, major patterns of sin or anything crazy. We did struggle with major patterns. Of, you know what I mean. There wasn't like gross misconduct in our marriage, and yet it was it was unbelievably challenging. And it seemed like every day when I'd go off to school, I'd drop my son off at a friend's house, and I'd go to class, and I'd open my computer, and I'd say to myself, "What am I doing?" <laughs> and my wife would go off to work, and she'd sit in a car at a light in traffic for an hour, and she'd say to herself, "Like, what are we doing? This is crazy." And conflict brewed more and more, and life was just unbelievably challenging. And I don't say that story. Please don't hear me tell you that story to to make myself or my family out to be hero or heroes. Because we didn't do it very well. School was unbelievably challenging. I didn't get great grades. Um, My wife really struggled through work for a long time until we figured some stuff out. But the question we kept asking ourselves, and the question we need to ask ourselves tonight is, is how do we make sense of life when we we can't make sense of life? What are not just the ways in which, the, the lenses in which we see the world, but how do we react when life gets unbelievably challenging? Or how do we react when life isn't that challenging? How do we live in this world as Christians in a life that could be really easy? How do we react when things are unbelievably challenging? That's some of the things we're going to talk about tonight. I tell this story because, um, yeah, that's all I need to say about that. We live in this, in this tension. Uh, right now, we live in, in a tension between two truths. Two uh, twin truths, I think is what I have in your book there. Twin truths of, of the reality that sin contaminates everything. That sin touches every single thing in this world. If you you go back to Genesis 3, which we won't do because we're, we're already pushing on time. We're going to go to other texts that are a little bit more pertinent to our discussion. If you go back to Genesis 3, every single part of this world was judged by God. And sin touched it and entered into it. God judged the earth, brought about brambles and made... Work toilsome, and uh, uh, Eve was judged, and Adam was judged, and the serpent was judged. Everything was brought into this sinful world. Everything, sin touched everything here. And that's the first truth. And yet, as Christians, we believe wholeheartedly that Revelation 21, verse 6, talks about how, how, how Jesus is making all things new. He's not making all new things. He's not going to torch this place and build a brand new one. He's making all things new. And so there's these these twin truths of the reality of sin, and yet the way the gospel should and technically does saturate everything. There's a tension in there. And it, it goes back to how we understand the gospel. In the book, How We Change, or How People Change, those we, we basically stole their title, How We Change. The book is How People Change, so I'll probably just use both of them interchangeably. Um, in the book, they talk about the reality that we understand our salvation. We understand the gospel's effects for, for salvation past because of what Jesus did on the cross and in his, resurre- his resurrection. I don't know how I'm going to recover from that. Um, And we also understand, so we understand the gospel in its past effects. And we typically understand the gospel in its future effects, in the reality that Jesus will return, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And yet there's this divide, this gap between those two places where we live in this tension, where we struggle to understand how the gospel actually saturates Every single aspect of our daily lives. And so that's what we're going to talk about together. That's what we're going to move towards as a group as we talk about um, how we change. This helps us make sense of the coworker next to us in the cubicle right next to us who eats tuna salad for lunch every single day. And he likes to um, leave the lid off to let the container dry before he takes it home to wash it off. So for the rest of the afternoon, after smelling the tuna, you continue to smell the tuna for the rest of the afternoon. Love that, that, that coworker. Love that friend. This helps us make sense of, of the boss, the, the supervisor, that, that is a good person. She's a great person, but she makes decisions that we would, totally, we would make the totally opposite decision. We don't agree with how she makes decisions. Not because they're ethically wrong, but we just completely disagree. And we we clash on that over and over and over again. This helps us in our marriages understand how we relate to one another on a daily basis. How after we we say I do and we start this fun journey, this unbelievably challenging journey called marriage, and and really apply the gospel in everyday rhythms and everyday life. And so that's what we're going to talk about. Now, we try to <clears throat> excuse me we try to fill this gap, this, this void, with a number of things. And, and here's one of the areas where we think uh, tripp and lane do a great job giving us some categories for understanding. How do, we, how do we try to make sense of this gap? How do we attempt to make sense of this gap? Uh, the first way that some of us might try to um, fill this gap is through something they call formalism. And so, essentially, it's kind of like doing all the Christian things. Whether that's going to church on Sunday morning, uh, whether that's doing quiet times every, every morning, whether that's um, being at a class called How We Change on Monday nights for four weeks in the fall. Um, you walk through the motions, and yet heart change doesn't happen. Another category that they say is some of us fall into kind of the, the, um, the category of, of legalists. And so we, we essentially try to fill that gap by saying, what are the ethical and moral do's and don'ts of this world? I'm a doer, I'm a donter, in the right context with the right things, Right? Some of us uh, fall into the category of, of activists. Some of us try to fill that gap with, with doing something uh, surrounding the issues that, that, that the gospel entails. And yet those things then become the gospel for us. And whether it's, whether it's um, rights for the unborn, or whether it's evangelism, or whether it's social justice, or whether it's um, whatever the case may be, you fill in the blank. Some of us try to fill that gap with, with a, a degree of activism. Some of us uh, fill the gap with, with mountaintop experiences. We're the first one to sign up for the retreat in, in junior high youth group. We are the first one to give our life, life to Jesus every single time. Every single summer camp. Gave my life to Jesus again. And told a new story about how he's doing a new thing in my heart my friend's heart. Some of us fall into the category of, of Biblicists. And so we, we essentially say to ourselves, if we can just gain more knowledge, if we can just gain more understanding, more theological depth of the gospel, of the Bible, of the things of the faith, we know the Christian calendar, we know church history, we know all these things so well. That is what will fill this void for me and for others. We just need more education. And some of us fill the gap with, um, well, they say psychology Basically that the church and people are here to fill my needs. And the last thing that they say, a category that many of us fall into, is socialism. And they're not talking about you know little, little red books. Um, they're talking about the fact that we, we try to fill our lives with the reality that, that generally churches have people. And so we go to all the church things because there's people there. And it gives us a sense of belonging. And, and all of these things... All these things are good things. They're all means to an end. But we tend to make them the end that we're seeking to serve. We tend to make them what fills the gap. And on top of that, we we, we try to manipulate, we try to make change happen through a number number of other things. And so, um, not only do we try to fill the gap, but we try to manipulate life in such a way that this gap makes sense. So, whether we try to change our circumstances, if I just had a if I just had a roommate who picked up his dishes, life would be easier. Living in light of the gospel would be easier. If I just had a husband who would vacuum, if I just had a husband who would pick up his dishes, <laughs> if I just had coworkers who didn't bring tuna salad to work, some of us try to manipulate um, this gap and manipulate life. Through behavior modification, we just think, if we can just get the right behaviors, if we can just do the right thing in the right situation, if we can um, do, 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 then we will always, we will actually start to make sense of, of this life and we will actually make change happen. Some of us seek to manipulate um, what we think or what we believe. If I, if I just have the right thinking on this situation, then I will respond and react in that situation correctly. Some of us think, uh, if I just believe in myself enough, if I have strong enough self-esteem, then I'll respond or react in these situations the way that I should. And some of us fall into the trap of just saying, like, I just need to trust Jesus more. I just need to let go and let God. And there's, like, just enough reality, there's just enough truth in all those things for them to be really dangerous. Because none of those things bring true and lasting change. So, We're going to break into our table groups and ask a couple questions. You've got questions at the bottom of that first section. And I want you first, before you ask those questions, introduce yourself. We're going to take 10 minutes and do this. Introduce yourself relatively quickly, but don't rush. And then ask, let's just ask this one question. What are the areas of your life? Nope, sorry. Go back. Which kind of gap filler are you? Ask that question of the table go okay let's come back together okay let's pray Lord Jesus, thank you for great discussion for warm hearts amen so let's move to the second session um, let's move to the gospel and how it affects change in our lives why it's connected how it's connected to change if you have your Bible or an application on your phone, turn to Mark chapter 1 with me. Mark chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 14. Mark 1, 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, "The time is fulfilled; the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." Mark's gospel narrative does not have a birth account. It doesn't talk about Mary. It doesn't talk about where Jesus came from. It doesn't talk about um, his his family history, his lineage. And not because Mark doesn't care, but because Mark is emphasizing other things. And so here we get a taste that will echo through the rest of Mark's gospel of what Jesus came to do. This is emphatic for Mark's gospel. It's at the front end of the whole gospel narrative. And and basically, this kind of introduction, these first things that Jesus is saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Everybody who would have heard that would have said he's using very specific language about a coming Messiah, a coming kingdom, where a good king will reign. All of God's people at that time were waiting for a king. They were waiting for a Messiah. They were waiting for an anointed one. And so he uses this language. He, he, says, he says, repent and believe. Another way to say that is repent and, and, and trust, or repent and have faith. And so what does that mean? There's a definition of that actually in a subsequent session, which we'll get to, but repentance means turning away from sin. It's an acknowledgement, an identification of sin, and a, a, a willful turning away from it. So it's, it's the picture is of somebody heading this way, they see what they're heading towards, and, and they decide, they willfully say, I don't want to go that way, I'm going to turn around this way, and then, then trust or faith or belief is, is turning this way, trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross in his resurrection. And so repentance and faith is kind of this, this two-sided coin, this, this, two, this two-turn uh, method of, 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 of working out the gospel in everyday life. And we'll get to that, as I said, in a subsequent chapter. But at the heart of Jesus' kingdom ministry... Central to what Jesus came to do is change. At the heart of His kingdom is change. I, I think I've said before, uh, Jesus didn't come. Uh, Jesus is uh, Jesus didn't come for a Jim Collins mission. He didn't come to make good people great. He came to make dead people live. How do you make dead people come alive? They need change. And so at the heart of what Jesus came to do, at the heart of his gospel, is change. Now, why do we need change? Why do we need to be made alive? Ezekiel uses this language in in Ezekiel chapter 11 and Ezekiel chapter 18. All over Ezekiel, he uses, I should say, God uses this language through Ezekiel, talking about how our hearts, are cold, how they are stone, how they, they, they don't feel the things that they should feel. He says in, his, in, in chapter 11, verse 19, he says, this is God speaking to uh, um, his people at that time. I can't remember if it's Judah or Israel, so it doesn't matter right now. Uh, he says, I will remove this heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, which is kind of weird, of fleshiness that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And then in Ezekiel 36, uh, 36, very similar language, he says, I will give you a new heart, he's talking to his people, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. We need heart transplants. We need a new heart. And so at the end of the day, most of us would say we need to change our circumstance. Or we need to change our behavior. Or we need to change the way we think about things. Or we need to change just how much we trust in Jesus. And and in one sense that is true. But what he's going back to is not like the the quality or the quantity of our trust in Jesus. But a willful acknowledgement that Jesus is faithful. That Jesus is the one who changes us. A turning away from sin and a walking towards a trusting in Jesus. Over and over and over again. And how does Jesus do this? He does it in the gospel. And so turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. this a beautiful passage about the gospel, the good news. And you were dead. There's that language that Ezekiel used. Cold, dead hearts. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which he once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience Those of us who were here uh, yesterday, we heard this, this passage preached. This passage is so helpful for us to understand the gospel. We were dead in our trespasses. The picture that Ezekiel eventually gets is one of, of a valley of dry bones, meaning these, these, these corpses, these people were so dead, there was no meat left on the bones. Birds and rodents had so picked at them that they were dry. There was nothing on them. They're dead in our trespasses yet, in the Gospel, God makes us alive through Christ, through faith in Him, through turning away from sin and trusting in Jesus. And in those things, because of those things, we are a new people. We have a new identity. We are a justified people, not a condemned people. We are an adopted people. We are sons and daughters of the King, not orphans. We are a reconciled people. We are no longer estranged from our Creator and the person with whom we were created to have good and lasting relationships with. We are no longer, uh, or excuse me, we are saved. We are no longer sinful. We are redeemed. Our, Our lives were bought with a price. We are washed. We're no longer unclean. Our identity is no longer bound up with who we are or what we do, but with Jesus. And so central to our understanding of the gospel is this new identity, these these new identity markers that we have both as individuals and as Jesus' church. So I want us to break into our groups again. And I want you to ask a couple of those questions, uh, the discussion questions that you have. But what I want you to ask first is of those identity markers, justification, adoption, reconciliation, salvation, redemption, washing, cleansing, which of those do you struggle with? to believe the most? Which of those are the hardest for you to understand and believe in your life? Go. Let's get started. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so good to us over and over and over again. You are good to us in good sodas. Although if you're from Nebraska, you say pop, which I know is weird. Jesus, you are also uh, the king over coffee late at night and staying up late and um, having good gospel conversations in a relatively warm basement of an old church. Amen. Um, Let's jump in where we left off. So we talked about about why change is important. We talked about uh, how the gospel affects change, at least to some degree, how it's connected to change. Um, We're going to shift gears a little bit. And talk a little bit about the the context for change. The place where God puts us, where lasting and true change uh, can happen. The primary place. So we're going to talk about God's church. We're going to talk about community. We're going to talk about uh, how God does that in the context of community. Now, before the break, we went through some identity markers. We are a justified people. We are a sanctified people. We are a saved people. We are uh, sons and daughters. We are adopted. Amen. Thank you. It is good news for you and for me. And because of that, we have these these new and beautiful identity markers. Now, what's what's good about that is that we don't just have those alone. We have those in the context of a new community. And so so Jesus in his goodness, in his in his gospel, in the good news that he saves people, doesn't just call us out of I should go this way, out of sin. But he calls us into a new community. And so even in the Old Testament, if you look at the story of the Exodus with Moses and God's people in the Exodus, um, uh, God does not just call Moses and his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. But he delivers them into a promised land, even though it took 40 years. He delivered them into a place where his presence will dwell with them. Where he will be their God and they will be his people. Where he will walk among them. And as new covenant people of God, as, as the people of God this side of the cross, we believe that, that the place where Jesus reigns through his Holy Spirit is in his people. And so we have uh, these, these identity markers that are both uh, personal and individual, but they are also what make us up as a People. So we are a people who are called out of sin and into a new community. Now, now, sometimes, as I said earlier, um, many of us struggle with, with uh, commitment. And associated with commitment is our struggle, our idolatry surrounding community, surrounding relationships, surrounding people. Because at the heart of all people is, is, is just frustration, right? Right? <laughs> We love lots of people, and yet at the same time, we, we really hate a lot of people, and we're frustrated with people, and people make life hard, right? Um, uh, I have an illustration, and it's not that helpful, so I'm not going to use it. Um, it's a really stupid one. Um, but the reality is, is, is we, there's a show on TV right now, Last Man on Earth. Um, and sometimes we, we believe that like, this life would be easier if we were the last people on earth. And we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't tell our spouses that or our parents or our roommates. But we believe that. You believe that. I know I believe that. Sometimes I think that. I'm not going to say anything there either. The reality is, is that uh, Jesus calls us out of sin and into a new community. And this community isn't optional. It's, it's not something that we can pick and choose and say, Oh, I guess I'll be part of the church. Part of that identity marker. When when Paul or anybody in, in the New Testament talks about the church, and he says um, the church at Ephesus or the church at Galatia, he's talking about a group of people. Every once in a while I'll talk with uh, somebody who... Uh, does like a home church type thing. Um, And there's nothing wrong with doing church type stuff in homes. That's what we do in gospel communities. It's beautiful and wonderful. Um, But it it usually means something like there's a parent and another parent, so a husband and a wife, and then there's some kids, and like they do church together. And and please don't hear me just like trying to throw stones and say they're idiots. They're not idiots. um, But usually there's this weird aversion to what we would call the true church. And not because they're not Christians, I'd be really careful to say that, but more like they just, they're like, well, there's just a lot of sinful people out there. What does that communicate about their little church? <laughs> there's not a lot of sin in that little church. Or we can just minimize the sin with less people. But community, the church, is not, is not optional. It's, it's what we're called to. It's this beautiful thing. It's this wonderful thing that the gospel calls a people out of sin and creates a new community. So if the gospel does that, if it calls us out of that, then the gospel should be at the center of all of our relationships. All of our relationships. It calls a bunch of weirdos who typically would not get along, typically would not be friends, says, hey, you can love each other. You can serve one another. You can be friends. It's the joy of gospel community. A bunch of weirdos who should never get along doing life together. Many people in my gospel community, I love them. I'm thankful for them. I would never, ever choose them as my friends. None of them are here tonight. (laughs) Makes it really easy to say that. But that's the good reality of the gospel and how it calls us into a community. And, and we have this desire, we have this longing to, to um, create relationships, to create community around anything but the gospel. We'd prefer to create our relationships, our, our friendships around um, affinity Right? So like we like, just we like these people and we kind of like the same things and we wear the same skinny jeans and we go to the same restaurants and we watch the same shows and we go to the same Red Rocks shows. We do the same things. We have an affinity for one another. Those are my gospel friends. Or we find gospel friends around life stage or something like that. And so um, I am a, sing- a young single man. I want a... Group of young single men, but mostly women, for my (laughs) gospel community. The odds are better if I'm one of a few single men. None of that is true, obviously. I'm married. Happily married. Or we we seek to find community in in, in just like something we enjoy to do, whether it's recreation. We find community in in anything but the gospel. We, 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 We take the gospel out of relationships and put something that we desire. Not bad things. None of those things are bad things. But we take what's at the heart of biblical community out of the equation in order to serve our needs, our desires, what we want and what we want to see. And Jesus, in the Gospel, says, no, 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 the church is this beautiful mess of broken people who love each other when they shouldn't. Look at Jesus' disciples. You have Matthew, or Levi, a tax collector, who is arguably the most hated person in all of Israel because he taxed his own people he overtaxed his own people in order to both pay Rome, who most of Israel hated, and then take some off the top for himself. And so usually tax collectors were relatively rich compared to most of the other um, Israelite people. So here's this guy who's basically uh, making money off of his own people in order to both serve himself and the state that they hate. And then you have Simon, you know, the so-called zealot. The zealots were people who would find these tax collectors in dark alleys and beat them. And Jesus, in the gospel, brings these two men into a community. and says, you will serve one another, you will love one another, you will be friends. That is good news for you and me, because I've got a lot of sin, you've got a lot of sin, and we can be a bunch of weirdos who are friends. And it's good news for us. So, I want to look at a a passage together in Ephesians chapter 4. Oh, we are great on time. You guys are so good. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4 together. And I'm going to start in verse 10. Oh, excuse me, verse 11. It's this beautiful picture of the church. There's, there's a group of leaders who are tasked with equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. So the leaders don't do the ministry all by themselves. They're equipping people to do the work of the ministry. And, and, and growth language is all over the place. We're to grow up into maturity, into likeness. We are to grow together. Each part, when it's working properly, makes the body grow. There's this image of a body where there are many different parts but all one body, different parts do different things, and they help one another out. If you don't have two legs, that's really that body struggles to do certain things. And so this picture helps us see that, that growth is central to the church, that one-anothering, meaning relationships are central to the church, and, and speaking the truth in love. So embodying gospel implications as we seek to grow with one another growing with one another, speaking the truth in love. I was visiting a friend a while back, and um, um, he's a single guy, and he lives with uh, a couple other single guys, and um, it was a a wonderful visit for a lot of reasons. I walked into their house, and it was the dirtiest house I have ever stepped into. I feel like I'm being really hard on dudes. I'm sorry. (laughs) But this illustration is really helpful, so I'm not that sorry. And I walked into the house, and it was really dirty. Um, like, like, one of those houses, you're kind of like, I think I just got allergies by stepping into this house. Uh, just very dirty. Like, I, I'm pretty sure they owned a vacuum. I don't know if they were confused as to how to, like, plug it into the wall or turn it on or actually just move it back and forth. But, like, the floor obviously had never been vacuumed. Um, there was mold growing in the toilet, I don't even know how that's possible. Like, really? How does mold grow in a toilet? Like, there should be water running through it once in a while. It was crazy. There was there was a uh, a relatively thin layer of dust uh, on top of a very thick layer of dust. Um, it was disgusting. It was it was it was really really gross. And I actually went into my friend's room, and his room was pretty clean, and, and um, which was just—I felt really bad for him. Um, but we were talking with his roommates and kind of talking about uh, the cleanliness of the home. I don't know how we started talking about that, but we really did. I'm not making this up. And um, it was—it was—it was fascinating. Uh, this one roommate of his um, said a number of things that I—I I could not get over. I couldn't believe he said them. One of the things that he said was—is. It's not that dirty. It's just pretty messy, which it was very messy, <laughs> but it was also filthy dirty. It was disgusting. Another thing he said was, was um, I don't really know, he was talking about a specific thing, for example, the toilet with the mold in it, like I don't really know if that can be cleaned. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Another thing he said was he was actually talking about, um, we were talking about uh, how dirty it was. It's only like a five-minute conversation. And it got all these nuggets. And I was like, I've got to use those at some point, in some sermon or something. And he, he said, he was talking about another roommate who had moved out at this point, And he was just talking about how, <laughs> it was really funny. He was talking about how this kid was like, was just really unhelpful in the daily chores of, of keeping the house clean, which was fascinating. But then he talked about how frustrated he would get and how he would not wring out a towel before he'd hang it up and so it would get like kind of stinky, kind of moldy in and of itself, which was terrible. And then the last thing that he said um, that was also really helpful is... is um, I'll get to it later. He didn't say that to me. He actually said that to this other friend of mine who uh, went on a trip and said, hey, you need to mow the lawn um, before I get back. Otherwise, it's going to grow to like two feet. And my friend left on a trip and came back and guess how tall the grass was. It was very tall. Now, this guy illustrates something that I think all of us fall into. A number of things that many of us fall into. Many of us fall into some kind of spiritual Blindness. We say to ourselves, it's not really that dirty, it's just kind of messy. My heart isn't really that sinful. I just have a lot going on in life, and you know, every once in a while I struggle with fill in the blank. Or some of us will say, um, I don't really know if change is possible. So we're not only spiritually blind, um, we're spiritually apathetic. We don't really believe that our heart can be cleaned. Or some of us will say, I'll get to it later. We're spiritual procrastinators. We'll say, like, I'll just keep kicking this this heart can down the road and eventually I'll get to actually dealing with the reality that sin pervades my life. That sin affects every relationship I have. Or last, many of us will say, one of our roommates refused to hang out the towels. Essentially we're saying, like, they piss me off because they do something even though I do the exact same thing. We become spiritual hypocrites. All of us fall into one of those categories. All of us fall into one of the places where, where we say either we, we don't really think we're that bad, we don't think change can happen, we'll get to it later, uh, later, or um, at least I'm not as bad as those people And yet we see in this passage, we see in Ephesians 4, that we desperately need one another. The gospel demands growth. And growth implies change. And if we believe that, then we need people to show us where we are spiritually blind. We need each other to show us where we are apathetic to the power of the good news of Jesus. We need each other in order to understand how we are hypocrites about our own sin. We never take the, the log out of our own eye before we help somebody else see the toothpick in theirs. And so we desperately need the church. The church is a gift to the church. So the question for us is, how do We change. But before we get there, let's ask a couple of these questions together for session three. You've got a number of questions there. One question, yeah, ask some of those questions, and then we'll come back together here in about five or ten minutes. Go. Let's come back together and finish up here one more time. One last session. Section. Session. One of the two. It's, it is sincerely really encouraging that you guys are talking to one another. Um, evidence that the gospel is good, right? Amen? That's easier than saying right. Right doesn't sound good. Uh, let's talk about this last section together. Before I do that, actually, uh, just that you uh, know, real quick, we were giving books to couples, um, not because we don't think that couples are two people united. Um, more just because we assumed that maybe you would want one book for a couple. If you do want two books and just want to buy another one, we have a ton upstairs or 10 bucks. And if you haven't paid yet for the class, we would encourage you just when we're done here in 15 minutes to pay um, Jeff. Find Jeff. He's, he was in the back. I don't know where he went. I think he, he's probably in the bathroom right now. Um, I'm just kidding. That was rude. Okay, let's get started. Um, so at the beginning we talked a little bit about, well we've been talking about change the whole time, but we talked about how um, we all have a means for doing certain things. And so we're going to move towards really what the rest of the class is going to entail, what the rest of, of the book is going to entail. And really start to dig into how do we apply, um, how do we understand, how do we address gospel issues in our own hearts and then how do we lovingly speak the truth to others in the context of community, this, this beautiful thing? How do we actually do that? Um, but before we do that, we need to talk a little bit about the heart. Uh, biblically, and we'll read Jeremiah 17 here in just a second, uh, just a second. Uh, biblically, the heart is kind of the epicenter of a person's life. So in the Bible, anytime somebody talks about the heart, they're essentially saying the essence of who this person is, and when we talk about change we 're getting at heart issues all those external issues we talked about earlier whether it 's changing circumstances or changing behavior or changing um, fill in the blank how we understand things how we think about things how we understand ourselves those are all external things we want to talk about the centrality of the heart uh, why the heart is important in this whole change business and it 's because Jesus will talk in uh, Luke 6 and Matthew 7 about how um, what we do is essentially a function of what's going on at a heart level. And so the method, kind of the means by which we're going to um, talk about change is this model that um, Paul Tripp and Timothy Lane kept up. If you have an appendix in your uh, binder this is a a, a helpful tool in a Christian's toolkit, and and what this is, I wish I could put this up on the board, but I I, I didn't, so I'm sorry. Um, what this does is it, it helps us understand what applying the gospel to everyday life really looks like. I'm gonna you can keep this out with you. I'm gonna read from Jeremiah chapter 17. I'd, I'd encourage you to go there if you want to. It'd be awesome. We can read it together, and we're gonna talk about how this model makes sense, and what's at the heart of the model even. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10. I'll let you turn there. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, and makes his flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, Shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And so, what we see here is—is uh, is this model isn't just in Jeremiah 17? If you have the book, which basically all of you do, uh, in the chapter, uh, in chapter six, they'll start to use this model to show how, over and over again, Scripture understands these categories as a means toward change. And so heat, excuse me, heat in this passage. If you look, for example, um, in verse 8, it says, This person who doesn't trust in the Lord is like a tree planted by water that sends out its root by the stream. Oh, sorry, that's actually the fruit. And does not fear when the heat... Why is this so loud all of a sudden? What am I doing? Thank you the light isn't, I'm sorry this is like real problems Um, quit looking down Uh, but this person does not fear when heat comes so this is not the person who's in a parched land this is not the person who is in a place like Salt Lake it's weird, God doesn't like Salt Lake apparently, that's not true that's just a joke and it's not funny um And then when we look, uh, heat is essentially kind of what is your situation? So what are the circumstances that you find yourself in? Do you find yourself in a small cubicle doing work you don't like? Or work that doesn't just give you like this thrilling sense of purpose and and wonder? Or do you find yourself in a really good job that you really do like, that really fits who you are? Do you find yourself kind of complacent because everything is pretty easy at this point? Do you find yourself in a relationship where you're like, this is unbelievably hard? Do you find yourself in a relationship where you just keep saying, wow, this is so easy? That is what the heat is. Heat isn't inherently um, negative, but it affects our heart. And so even in times of great blessing, we can grow apathetic, we can grow lazy, we can procrastinate. So that's what heat is. It's it's kind of what is the situation in which you're living with the situations that you find yourself in. And then it talks about thorns on this model. Thorns are essentially the way that we respond sinfully to the heat of this world. And so if we find ourselves in just a great job that we really love, what would the thorns look like in that? We just say to ourselves, wow, this is really easy. I've got it made, God loves me, and he hates everybody else. Or what if we find ourselves in a job that we don't think is that thrilling? We say to ourselves, I deserve better. I'm entitled to something more. Everybody deserves a good job. Nobody should have to work at McDonald's. Those are the thorns, the sinful ways that we respond to the heat. And then cross, kind of this, this, who is God and what has he done? So in this chapter, or excuse me, Jeremiah 17, he kind of talks about who God is as as, as um, somebody who searches the heart, somebody who tests the mind. Up in verse 5, he talks about, basically, God is somebody who should be trusted in. He's trustworthy. And so the question we ask ourselves when we come to the cross in this model is, how does the gospel call us to something different? Instead of responding to our situation, our circumstances, our behavior with 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 thorny, sinful brambles? What does the gospel actually call us to? Does it say to us, nobody told you you deserve, your parents probably told you, but other than your parents, nobody told you that you deserve the perfect job. Not all of us can be CEOs of Apple. Not all of us can be startup you know, entrepreneurs. Not all of us can be bankers. Not all of us can be stay-at-home moms. Not all of us can do exactly what we think we should be doing. And that's not bad. That's actually very good. How do we respond? What does the gospel call us to as Christians, as people who understand the gospel? And then it calls us to um, fruit. Essentially, how do we, as, as I said earlier, turn away from our sin? How do we turn away from our sinful reaction to our circumstances and trust in who God is? And what Jesus has done that we might be bought with a price. That we might be new people. What is he calling us to turn away from and to trust in? How is he calling us to do that in the context of community? And so here in this illustration and other illustrations throughout the Bible. Paul Tripp and Timothy Lane help us to understand this model where we we see ourselves in a situation where we're trying to study for a Hebrew exam and we have a a three-month-old son who won't stop crying and we haven't slept for days and we can say to ourselves, well, I can be really frustrated with my wife for not getting up with my three-month-old son or I can just be thankful that I have a wife who gets a little bit of sleep tonight and Hebrew exams will get failed in this world and praise God for failing Hebrew exams. Right? I never did that. <laughs> it sounds great. It's really hard. And I didn't have a model like this to think through. How does it make sense? How do we make sense of this world that we find ourselves in? This big picture, that's what they call it, the big picture. It says Appendix A on your sheet. Uh, but they call it the big picture. And and central to this big picture, at the end when you get to the fruit portion, which will be... Um, yeah, the last week that we talked together. Um, central to that is, is this idea of repentance and faith. Essentially, turning away from sin, trusting in Jesus for specific things. And so, uh, as you head into this last set of questions for four minutes, I'll pray for us before we leave, but um, ask yourselves the question, what are things, what are circumstances, what is the heat that you find yourself in? Constantly frustrating you, constantly bringing out sinful responses, constantly driving you to a sense of entitlement or apathy or spiritual blindness. Then ask the people in your gospel community, ask the people who know you. Maybe not the people who don't know you. That could be dangerous. The people who know you. What are things I need to repent of? That's the good news of community. That's the good news of the gospel in community is we have people who can see what we don't see. We have people who can tell us, hey I see something in you and I love you I'm not going to tell you and then run away I'm going to tell you and then I'm going to walk with you through it. So ask that question what are things that I find myself needing to repent of over and over and over again and Then ask some of the people who love you, what are some things you see that I, I could just work on things that need to be dealt with if you're married um, don't do that after 9pm just a little wisdom, that's a bonus bonus for you Let me pray. And then when you guys are done discussing at your tables, you can feel the freedom to jet. Let me make a quick plea as well. Um, So I'll say this. I'm not teaching this class next week, so I'm not making a plea that you come back and hear me teach to stroke my own ego. Uh, Let me just reiterate. Please commit to this class. We want Park Church to be a place where people see real change because of the good news of who Jesus is. We don't just want this to be a place with big classes. We want it to be a place where change is happening in our midst. because Jesus is in our midst. So please, come back next week and hear whoever is teaching. Can't remember who it is. So I'll pray. Jesus, we're thankful for this good news. We're thankful for what you have done that we might be saved. We're thankful that you not only show us our sin, but that you give us people who can see it clearly, more clearly than we can. And then you... Um, you compel us to tell one another about how, how good it is that Jesus has saved us. Jesus, we pray that we would be ambassadors, that we would represent the King well in showing people where they fall short, where sin still pervades their life, and yet also shows those people where you are good, where you are loving, where you have saved us and redeemed us and already forgiven us. Jesus, we pray that you would make us gospel people, Pray these things in your name. Amen.